right, welcome to another Crazy Town bonus riff. And this time it's extra bonus because we've got Melody Allison, our incredible producer, here in studio. Woo-hoo! Thank you. <laughs> we gotta be on our best behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still well, not used to your uh, your new last name, I gotta be honest. I am also not used to my new last name. I bet. It's a whole kerfuffle. So a Melody, kerfuffle. well, Melody has just moved to the Pacific Northwest from Austin, Texas, and she has brought the Austin weather with her up here. Thanks for that. You're welcome. It's well, not as bad as Austin. And we decided, you know, the best way to welcome you is by giving you fires. And wow. So, uh, the uh, the air quality in Eugene is mm, uh, off the charts. You know, in all kinds of ways. I like never smoked, and I think my lungs are too pink. Yeah. So yeah. I think uh, this well, is good for me. You know, you'll build build up some. Yeah, uh, it's a toughening up process <laughs> as you move in here. It's great. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're here, Melody. You should uh, you should feel free to fall asleep because yeah. we're boring, or pipe in. Yeah. You know, as things go, and uh, you'll know exactly what to edit out because you'll be live here with all our ums and likes and yas and you knows, right? Uh, if she edited that stuff out, our episodes would be like four minutes long. <laughs> exactly. <Half laughs> I got to keep it natural, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, well, so I asked us to get together. You know, we do these yeah, spontaneously, right? Yeah. Like combustion. Like combustion, yeah. We could spend all the time talking about the heinous landscape that is outside the window here, Jason. It is yeah. a little dystopian. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I actually wanted to, I wanted to ask you guys, do you know about Baghdad Bob? Do you remember Baghdad? I Bob? totally remember Baghdad. You Bob. do? Yes. I'm Rob? the least informed of us, so no, I have no Melody? idea who Never heard of Baghdad Bob. No. Okay. He also had another nickname, Chemical Ali, which is another name. So if you if you go online and search for Baghdad Bob, sometimes you might come across Chemical Ali instead. Both are probably pretty offensive names at this point, but this goes back to the very, very early days, the, the initial invasion of Iraq. The second time, right? Mm. The first one was, yeah. I was around yeah. for that one. So I was, was around. A big, that was, yeah. was a big deal. I'm, we're talking 2003 We're here. talking younger Bush, not the older Bush. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about redux here. Yeah. Okay? So um, very early days, you know, the U.S. military comes in. And uh, a guy named Muhammad Saeed al-Sahaf. Good job. Uh, hopefully is the right pronunciation. He was... He was Saddam Hussein's information minister, okay, mm-hmm. at the time. All right. And his job was to get up there at a podium. You know, you do these press conferences. There are these amazing clips of him outside, actually, you know, giving press conferences, like at the Baghdad airport or different places around town. And his job was basically stand up there and say, everything you think is happening is not happening. Right. Right? Like... You cannot trust the Western media. He got more and more extreme in his pronouncements, basically denying the reality that his country was basically slipping away from from Saddam's power and grip right. on power. So he said things like, our initial assessment is that they will all die. You know, he was very, like, uh, like propagandist in the beginning. They're not even within 100 miles of Baghdad. They're not in any place. They hold no place in Iraq. This is an illusion. They're trying to sell others an illusion. Of course, literally, like, the U.S. is entering into the streets of Baghdad while he's saying these things. What did he say that day? They were actually pulling down the Saddam Hussein statue. Exactly. (laughs) Statues are being erected all over the city. My favorite was him saying, we have destroyed two tanks. 
fighter planes, two helicopters, and their shovels. <laughs> we have driven them back. Yeah. <laughs> because that's all we came in with, right? Yeah. Two tanks, two two I, helicopters. I like that uh, detail in their shovels. That's yeah. awesome. And their shovels, yeah. <laughs> so he became what to me was like the very first internet meme I can remember. You know, and it's a little unfortunate to think about the, the giggles I probably had at the time, but it was just the juxtaposition of the reality of what this guy was saying was so extreme. Mm. So you could actually still find memes that people use to this day. Was he saying stuff like, we have no weapons of mass destruction? <laughs> right. Yeah. What a liar. And what, what'd you say his name? His nickname was Alex Jones. <laughs> exactly. Baghdad Bob is what people called him. So... I was thinking about him because uh, a couple of weeks ago I read this this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Don't ask me why. I'm not a regular reader of the Wall Street Journal. It was forwarded on. You know, these things get passed yeah, around. Yeah, somehow I got yes. it. I think yeah, it was... It came uh, to me too, you know. I, I think uh, it was a collective uh, exasperation on the... Oh, uh, yeah. well, I, I was checking my stock portfolio using the Wall Street Journal. That's oh, how okay. I came across it. Yeah, you know? nice. So there's this piece that was written by uh, Alicia Finley. She's a member of their editorial board. And yeah, the, title is, the title says it all. I mean, I don't yeah. know if we have to go beyond this, but we will. It says... <laughs> Climate change obsession is a real mental disorder. That's the title. That's I mean, the title just get that, the strong lead. Yeah. I love that. We could learn a few things from her in terms yeah. of titling things. So in the piece, she actually quotes from a Nature Journal article. And the quote is, First and foremost, it is imperative that adults understand that youth climate anxiety is an emotionally and cognitively functional response to real existential threats. And then she said... Although feelings of powerlessness, grief, and fear can be profoundly disruptive, particularly for young people unaccustomed to the depth and complexity of such feelings, it is important to acknowledge that this response is a rational one, right? Okay, so she's quoting the Nature article here. Yeah, but keep in mind she's dismissing what the Nature article says. Yeah, yeah. Well, she goes on to write... That these anxieties are no more rational than the threats from climate change are existential. So just wave that hand. uh, Just (laughs) deny all that science right away. Uh, A more apt term for such fear is climate hypochondria. Which I'm I'm just going to throw some kudos. That's pretty good writing. That's pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty good good writing, but uh, pretty pretty awful. Yeah, all all the people that were in Maui... Yeah. You know, throwing themselves into into the ocean. That was just hypochondria. Yeah, well, hyper, hyperthermia is basically hypochondria. They're kind of the right. same. Except the water, the ocean's probably boiling. Mm. So it's, yeah. uh, How so about this for the, uh, the final line of that article? It ends with this. Climate hypochondriacs deserve to be treated with compassion. Aw. <laughs> Much like anyone who suffers from mental illness. They shouldn't, however, expect everyone else to enable their neuroses. I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try my best to treat her with compassion. <laughs> it's not easy, but I am going to try to be as nice and compassionate with her and what she must be going through. This writer, this poor writer, as she is, she, she as she yeah. shows compassion in her let me, piece. Let me look up her name again. Her name is Alicia Finley. A oh, poor Alicia. <laughs> This must be really hard for her. She probably gets paid pretty well, actually. It must be really hard for her, though, to be so disconnected from reality and to project so strongly onto others who have real feelings. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. I just, I just have so much compassion for her. Thanks for being so empathetic. Yes. Okay. I don't... 
Sorry, I don't have that reaction at all. <laughs> so, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through some of the things that she basically is referring to. She's also referring to like real statistics out there. She she quotes a Lancet article. That's a that's a British what, journal. I what believe. are these crappy articles that she's looking? at? She's looking in Nature. Nature. She's looking in Lancet. Yes, like really low. Level and looking crap. at them in order to dismiss them, right? right. Well, because yeah. she's part of a journal that really, really comes from a economics it, profession background and business, so they know that's everything. That's a true journal. Well, it's yeah. all, that, all that uh, peer review they do on the Wall Street <laughs> exactly. Journal. Yeah. yeah, she's part of the peer yes. review process. Yeah. Okay, so the, this Lancet article studied 16 to 25-year-olds in 10 countries and reported 59% were very or extremely worried about climate change, and 84% were at least moderately worried. 45% claimed they were so worried that they struggled to function on a daily basis, the definition of an anxiety disorder. So, uh, you know, she basically calls these, these folks losers and weak and snowflakes and all that you know all this kind of stuff yeah so she she sees this evidence that's presented this was a study of ten thousand people by the way it was a little okay yeah yeah, ten thousand people it's a lot of work went into this right yeah and she's like yeah yeah these people no no justification they're just they're just wimps or something like that yeah Mm -hmm. well the reason i brought up baghdad bob is literally baghdad bob came to my mind when i read that piece from her that's a good thing to come because Yeah, great thing. Because it feels like such an extreme form of denialism. Yes. And I have a hypothesis for you guys, which is I sadly suspect that we will see more of this kind of... I mean, we've seen all kinds of denialism, right? That the Wall Street Journal in particular Mm -hmm. has been really great at propagating over the years around climate science. And she even does that in this piece, right? Yeah. The beginning, she talks about the climate science isn't isn't even really solid. Right. But I feel like we might be entering a new era of denialism, right? Which is like the worse things get the more some people will fall to an extreme of absolutely lambasting those positions, those concerns, or just like whistling past the the graveyard, or I don't know what it is. I want to mark this point in history for historians. Okay. Okay, I'm going to call mark time. So whenever this podcast released, and we're going to mark the time here, because this is, this will turn, they'll look back on this, and this will be called the Miller Paradox after you. Oh. Yes. Yes. I think so. Oh, my work is done. I think so. Okay. Yeah. It won't do any good. But, no. right. but That's right. It'll be called the it, Miller Paradox. It seems like, I mean, she's attacking the idea, the very idea of climate grief, where we, we can't be sure she might be in it. Like, that's why she's denying yeah. it, because that's the first stage Denial. of grief, right? I mean, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Look, she's she gets paid. She's on the editorial board of Wall Street Journal. The editorial board has always taken the most extreme views. I mean, the, the Wall Street oh, Journal yeah. has actually done good, good journalism. There's some real reporters the years, there, for you sure. know what I mean. But like, yeah. they're the board has always taken this they're all, super they're pro awesome. industry. You know, oh. so uh, I'm sure she. You know, it's a little bit like that adage: you you don't go against what your your salary. Don't bite basically. the hand that feeds, or something yeah, like that. Whatever. There's one. So, I that, mean, that's that, a good that, one, right? So, but I do suspect. I have to say, I suspect mm. that there is a form of psychological denial yeah. on her part. Well, it's nice of you to call it the Miller paradox, Jason, because uh-huh. I think we could 
actually call it the diamond paradox. Oh, that's a you, be- sounds you, better. You do know, recall that's a better name. Par- paradox is like a good way, movie name. Yeah, way better. <laughs> yeah, like Tom Cruise and the, the diamond, diamond paradox. paradox. <laughs> yeah, or it's a Hardy Boys title. <laughs> What's the Hardy Boys? You don't know what? the Hardy Boys? No. Okay. But okay. it's so old. Come okay, on. Let's talk about a cultural reference. That, that brings the Hardy Boys. Nancy, Nancy, you gotta say Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew. Right, yeah, it comes for equal opportunity yeah. uh, adolescent yeah, detective mysteries. book. Yeah. They're great. Provider. I, I preferred Encyclopedia Brown myself. Okay. Oh. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the Diamond Paradox is from Jared Diamond, of course, mm-hmm. the author of Guns, Germs, and Steel and Collapse. Mm-hmm. I remember one time when we were recording this podcast, Jason, you were using Collapse as a coaster for yeah. your beer, <laughs> That's right. which I thought was very apt for, uh, for the topics we consider here. But anyway, in Collapse, Jared Diamond talked about how people who live at the base of a dam or yeah. below a dam they tend to discount the risk of that dam collapsing. The dam can never wiping fail. out their. It whole is the town. perfect dam. Right. The closer they are to the yeah. dam, the less concern they express. Yeah. No concern, right. absolutely at all. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that I, thing's I tough. It's made of concrete. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It, right. And that and that's my point is that the closer we get to the real consequences of climate breakdown, I feel like the more we're going to see this kind of a reaction. Maybe not with the same ridicule, but. So yeah, so what is what is this coming? So I think there's a there's a couple of things, there's a couple of hypotheses to explain this poor woman's behavior. Okay, if she's a human being and she, I, what I, are you I, are you doing this whole empathy gambit for for Melody here? So she actually thinks like you're a nice guy. <laughs> is it could, only because she's in the room? Oh wow, I hope it's not. really schmaltzy. It would not, not work. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I want you to stop right now. If you could just stop. Well, so here's the thing. I, I don't want to say anything mean because I could go really? in a really dark direction, uh-huh. right? Because that this was a tough piece to read. It's so bad. And it you, you just... Tell me you were not pissed when you read it. I was pissed. Yeah. I was pissed. Okay. So, okay. But, so what I think of myself is not what's wrong with her. But what happened to her? Right. What's uh, wrong with us? Okay, what happened to her? She, something happened to her that made her this way. Yeah, they, yeah she got a big fat check. Exactly, they paid her a million dollars to get a bonus. Okay, so is this just gaslighting behavior from the Wall Street Journal that yes. pays her? Yeah. Is this something personally that is in her where she is in psychological denial of what's going on? Because it acknowledging this would expose some something that would threaten her identity, right? Mm-hmm. Her paradigm. Neoclassical economics, neoliberalism, the market solves things. When we have the greatest market failure of all time here, potentially, right? So so I want to talk about not just her though, because that's what we could maybe we can set her aside. She's a she's 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 important, but she's not that important. <laughs> and let's move on. Okay to what's going on within the climate-concerned community about how to deal with this. Because the article, you know, she writes this article dismissing all these, these data mm-hmm. about the anxiety that's being felt, the existential so, threat. So let's talk about that. How so you're saying we're not going to join her. We're not going to just dismiss out of hand that uh, anybody who's worried about the climate has a mental illness. Well, that's, we're not doing that? No, I think maybe that I want to. Look, I want her to reflect upon herself and wonder if she has a mental illness. 
<laughs> but I'm not so worried about the people who, who, who are worried about can, climate. Can I just say how weird this all is coming from a podcast called Crazy Town? <laughs> like, we're not talking about mental illness here. No, we're really. such ableists. Yeah. Really. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you bring up something I think that is interesting, Jason, which is whether she's gaslighting or this is a form of her own denialism, she actually is providing evidence of an experience that people are having, yeah. right? which is forms of climate anxiety. I mean, I think we all know people in our lives. We experience it probably to some degree oh ourselves, oh, right? Yeah. I got to tell you, looking at the, at the window right now, it's a little fucked up to be able to look at the sun. And yeah. That's because the light's so scattered. Is. Well, it's beautifully scattered today. It's it, was, it was actually the smell that alarmed me because it smells like a campfire outside. You open the door and you're like, wow, I, I feel right. like I'm literally around a fire. And yeah. the, I don't know how many hundreds of miles away the fire actually is but uh clearly in effect yeah it's not just the young people who are upset right i mean we're, the study we're talking right. about is these young people i have a friend i had lunch with today and she said that she doesn't have time to think about this stuff during the day she's busy right she's doing her life she's working and she's dealing with her kids and but she wakes up at night every night and i'm like you got to deal with this in the daytime <laughs> to yeah. some extent so you can sleep, right? So, yeah, um, a lot of people are, are, are very upset. And when stuff like this happens, the, the, the fires, I mean, we've had actually a beautiful summer in Oregon until now. I've been looking across the nation going, oh, my God, this is horrible. But I, like, I feel like I've been spared. And then suddenly, like, nope, not it, yet. <laughs> it is actually interesting thing about that. If... If by the end of the summer, you could sort of say, well, every region got every. hit. You yeah. know what I mean? Every there is no safe space. There's nothing. Everything. The Pacific Northwest is this island of like, oh, oh, it's well, fine. Although, I, as I said, Melly, you just came from Austin. And my my mom lives in Austin. My sister lives in Austin. and I Alex Jones lives well, in Austin. <laughs> well, that's the main reason. I check my 10-day forecast of Austin every day. And it's like... 80 for a low and 104 for a high. And it's been that way for a couple of months. Well, that's the thing that's interesting. At first, it was like, oh my gosh, this crazy event. And now it's just a season. Yeah. Oh, it's wildfire season. Right. Oh, yeah. oh, it's not a hurricane. It's hurricane season. Right. We call it in Austin, summer. <laughs> right. It's just over 100 degrees. And that's a denial or like, it's it's really just a coping mechanism, right? Like, we're always trying to find some sort of homeostasis. Yeah. And so even as things keep getting crazier and crazier, we're like, okay, no, no, um, okay, now I have a word for that. Uh, it's just a season. Oh, yeah. you know, Shifting if I hunker down, yeah. right, and then it'll be better. This episode yeah. brought to you by Summer. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that the Wall Street Journal writer, that's what she said. Right, she said. She said, oh, this is all getting normalized, you know, and, and people get used to it, and then they, they won't be so anxious. We always anymore. adapt. We always yeah. adapt. It's all good. Yeah. You know, we could definitely adapt to, you know, we're gonna uh, we're gonna be like sixty degree wet bulb. <laughs> we're we're gonna be like thermophilic bacteria coming out of the volcanic vents. We we can we can last. Well I wanna get back to what you I felt like you were getting at, Jason, which was okay, so let's forget her in yeah, terms of her, her dismissal of climate anxiety if and, and acknowledge that this is a real thing. We experience it, people we know experience it. That study shows that young people in particular are experiencing it. And that there is kind of a debate within the climate community around not so much how to deal with this, but around communicating and talking about how dire 
the situation is. Mm. Is is that what you were trying to get at? I, I was thinking more like, I guess I think it's pretty dire. I've already accepted that. So yeah. I have, I'm not coming from the point of view of how do we communicate to the public, which I think is another good question to ask. I was more coming from like, how should we process the direness of the situation so we can not necessarily be okay with it, but in a sense be functional and respond in ways that maybe make it less dire. You know, there's different degrees of direness. <laughs> and I, you know, the, the difference between, say, two degrees Celsius and five degrees Celsius is, is tremendous, right? Like the amount of complex life that persists on the planet is vastly different in those two different scenarios. So I almost think like what we need is people to be able to find a way to still keep working towards a better world, <laughs> um, better outcomes, even though they're going to be facing all kinds of horrors. So how do you remain functional when you can see the horrors that are coming? But I think exactly what you bring up is the reason why this debate is happening within the climate community and it's important to talk about. Because you talked about the difference between two degrees and five degrees, right? Yeah. We're still hopefully, fight, I think a lot of people are still fighting to try to keep things to below two degrees, 1.5. Right. However yeah. optimistic or pessimistic they are about the prospects of, of achieving that, we know there's a big difference. Whatever it is, even a tenth of a degree makes, makes a difference. A difference. Right? Yes, you should fight so, for every tenth of a degree. So I think that there are people who are concerned, are expressing concern about public declarations of how bad it is, how bad mm-hmm. things might get, which those declarations may be just people's expression of their anxiety, you mm-hmm. know, of their concern, of their processing. But there are people who are reacting against that. And and I think it is interesting to sort of look at what, what's happening in that debate because we have people that are really well-respected who've kind of been pushing against what they consider to be climate Alarmism doomerism. or doomerism. Yeah. Okay. Like, and, and you're not talking about the right-wing no. denialists. You're talking about people in our camp. Yeah. So, for example, Michael Mann, you know, very <laughs> highly respected uh, climate science, you know, scientist, right, uh, who's been very vocal about this. Rebecca Solnit, you know, who's... Uh, an amazing author who's, yeah. who's covered a lot of really important topics. Um, you know, she just wrote a piece in, in The Guardian and, um, about this very issue. And she, um, she titled it, We Can't Afford to Be Climate Doomers. I mean, there's a full thing. Like, there's a, there's a McPherson level of doomism. Right. And then there's like... Re- refer to our episode yeah. on Guy McPherson. Yeah. He says, we're all going to be dead three years from now. Right. right. Human okay. extinction is... We all died is, yesterday. Is, yeah. 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 So that obviously that's 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 absurd, but there's also probably levels that she's talking about that she's. So I'm kind of curious. Can yeah, you know, I, th- find, I think that I, you know, I think it's not, it's not just the guy McPherson's that they're reacting to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that they are reacting to to discussion. Uh, you know, that is about kind of how how bad the situation is from people that are you know are not are not near-term ex- extinctionists, mm-hmm. you know. And we um, see this with our allies. I mean, Peter Kalmus is close to us. He's a climate scientist, mm-hmm. and he's got an unbelievable level of climate anxiety based on the scientific research that he does uh, to the point where he's become a climate activist, you know, and he's chaining himself to the door of the private airline, uh, you know, terminal at the, at the airport. He's chaining himself to the investment bank office that's supplying money to fossil fuels. I mean, that, 
Right. That's a level of anxiety that I haven't reached yet. But I think you're bringing up a key point, which is it's anxiety combined with action. Yeah, it's and a I think crippling cons- anxiety or productive anxiety. And, and I think that that's – so the concern here, – here, I'll just quote Re- Rebecca Solnit's piece. Okay. She wrote, some days I think that if we lose the climate battle, it will be due in no small part to this defeatism among the comfortable in the global north while people in frontline communities continue to fight like hell for survival, which is why fighting defeatism is also climate work. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she's just referring to Guy McPherson. I think Mm -hmm. she's reacting to a concern that she has that people are expressing how bad the situation is, right? How concerned that they are, the trajectory that we're, we're, we're going on, and seeing that as defeatism, right? I think it, it can be both. No, well, but so, so that's the thing is, you talked about Peter Kalmus, Rob, as an example of this. Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, they conducted a survey back okay. in, in December of 2022 of Americans, and they found that, and I'm quoting here, Americans who had experienced at least one feature of climate distress were much more likely than those who had not, to say that they had taken different forms of climate action. Well, right? that's good because we're all experiencing it now. <laughs> okay, so this is the, this is the line that, that she's worried about. When you are distressed and anxious, do you go hedonistic or denialist? Do you, do you just like, nah, 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 or just say party on, we have nothing, we, we, there's nothing we or can do? Or maybe it's neither of those. Maybe it's, depressed. it's, yeah, depressed and, and inactive. inactive. All of the, those are different, three different emotional reactions you could have. Right. I can see that. Or are you more likely to say like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, but I actually am going to get my butt into gear. I'm going to do something. This is what I kind of, I feel like, but maybe it's just different personalities, right? I, I don't know what the right answer is. Some, Somebody should do some sort of general survey of humans for like their their five big five personality traits or whatever. And what's the most likely direction someone might go? I mean, how do you, if we can target messaging to individuals on Facebook and on <laughs> YouTube, maybe we can target the messaging. I mean, that's ridiculous. Of course we can't. But, but my yeah. guess is like this, the survey that was yeah, done by Yale, I don't think that they were, they just happened to survey more people who are a certain personality right, type. Right, right. I think that their argument is that being distressed and being concerned leads you to take more action. Well, that's what the stress not. and concern is for. It evolved. Right. So we do something. This is why people are anxious because anxiety is like, you know, okay, there's a problem here. There's like something going on. There's something I need to resolve. I'm going to take an action to relieve the anxiety. And if it's functional, it actually relieves anxiety because something... Something happened that improved the situation. The problem, of course, with climate change is it's so big that it's are you on this treadmill where almost nothing you can do is ever going to resolve it. And this is where I think we have to be clever in some way and maybe trick our brains to some extent into having some way of both accepting that we may not have enough influence to make enough difference or that we will never know if we're going to make enough difference. Like, we have to live with that uncertainty. But is it worth fighting for each tenth of a degree? Well, if you love the, the planet and you want complex life to persist as best it can, then I say, yeah, you should do that. I think a lot of people don't know what that fight looks like. And I think my hypothesis, if mm-hmm. you will, is that part of the despair is that there isn't a consensus. I mean, there is a scientific consensus, but 
I'm thinking my, myself as like a teenager, right? You're scrolling on your phone, you're down the climate rabbit hole, and then you see an article like this, or and then you see politicians being like, oh, you know what? We are going to try to get some it. electric cars. You know, inflation and, reduction. You know what? We're not going to have any plastic straws anymore, guys. So we are on it. And a young person doesn't have power. I mean, I'm... 33 and I feel like I'm waiting until I can have like maybe some power. Someday. Like people like me die. Yeah. Like once you die <laughs> off, maybe I'll get some freaking right. power. Right. Here. Sure. But, I hope you uh... get more power than what Jason <laughs> yeah, Jason, you're so powerful. <laughs> no, but there is that like you are born into a society that has set up things in a certain way and that society is like, okay, yes, it's on the one hand really bad or on the other hand, not bad at all. And so I think that that's causing some of that cognitive dissonance and depression where you're like, okay, well, what, what can I actually do? Yeah. So go ahead. Ro. Well, I was just going to say, let's make that turn. Let's well, talk about what, what we could do to process grief and, and deal with it in a productive way. I think it might be not seeing these as distinct areas of focus. And by these things, I mean the emotional side and the action side, right? right? So we came up with this this kind of term, acceptance and agency, a couple of years ago. Because what we're trying to do at, at Post Carbon, we were organizing a conference at the time, and we were looking for people who straddled that kind of complex middle of accepting the the true nature of the predicament that we're facing and owning the feelings that might come up out of that and, and the uncertainty and all that stuff and at the same time still feeling agency over it and and a lot of times people go to denialism because they don't can't yeah. accept it can't process it or whatever or they come to a place where maybe they have processed it and they see how bad the situation is and then they become fatalistic and so they have no agency but if we look at those things as together in some ways, as reinforcing, right? So for us to be able to own our feelings, process what we're dealing with, our grief, our anxiety, to not feel alone with those emotions, Mm -hmm. to recognize that that's going to be part of our journey, and we could talk about resources for being able to do that, leads us to maybe be more motivated, more able to take action. Mm -hmm. And the more action that we take, Maybe that helps us actually not alleviate, but address and somehow be able to process and deal with our complex emotions. And mm-hmm. it's it's going to be probably a tumultuous sort of, you're never going to be in a perfect spot of, no. of kind of synergy sitting in that, you know, space of like, I'm fully in acceptance and fully have full agency, but, you know, going back and forth between them and that they're reinforcing on some level if we're working on both things yeah right well if one thing can save us it's synergy synergy <laughs> i know so that me pulling know. out the business speak right? yeah synergy it's no, a win-win uh, everybody uh, yeah i'm always questioning how much you are supposed to look at the climate predicament or or the biodiversity predicament sure. or any of these existential crises that we're facing. The Pac-12 just fell apart. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Don't talk about that. It's too painful. Yeah. But 
Well, you could talk about that from a climate perspective. Really? We're going to have know, West really. Coast teams flying into know, the middle of the country just to play games? Anyway. Did uh, anyone bring that up in a meeting? Well, you think a single person brought that up? I want to know. What are the environmental impacts of us yeah. getting rid of the, these yeah. regional... Yeah, Does our so, water polo team really need to do this? Yeah, I was I was thinking about it, like the Tiddlywinks team at Oregon is going to fly to Michigan to <laughs> Tiddlywinks team, <laughs> the frisbee golf team. Right, but I've wondered this a lot. I mean, you can read and read and read, watch documentaries, talk to jackasses like you guys, and you get pretty damn depressed by you know, <laughs> or you just open the window right mm-hmm. and smell the air. And I'm, I'm wondering in this idea of seeing all that and trying to process this grief, like what's the amount that we should be doing that? What's a healthy level of distraction? Uh, and, three and a quarter cups. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, like I, I've told that you guys. a lot of alcohol. Well, I mean, I've told you. <laughs> it's beer, it's beer. Okay. I've told you guys a bunch of times, like my retreat is go out into nature and frolic, right? You know, like yeah. go ride a mountain bike on a trail or whatever. It's burning. It's kind of hard to do that. You're going to go out there right I now. I know. It's, it's, again, it's a detriment to my health to go to go and do that right now. And some I've told you too, I've had that vision where I was like mountain biking with my daughter on a beautiful day. We we're having fun. And I was thinking, this is all going to burn yeah. next yeah. year. And just like literally picturing it as yeah. a charred forest. Yeah. So I, I think obviously this is real. Obviously it's based on the scientific facts as much as our Wall Street Journal articles want to say otherwise. So the question then is when you're feeling that, when you have it, what's the best way to get that agency that you're talking about to share? I, I'm sorry to say, I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all for everybody. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think, I, I, I appreciate you actually bringing up the, the the topic of distraction, because I also feel like, I'll give you like a little analogy that, that just popped in my head, which is, you know, when I was young, I just graduated college, my first sort of job out of, out of school was working at the, the Shoah Foundation, which I probably talked about before. You know, we were interviewing Holocaust survivors, and it really felt like a race against time before they, they passed away. And we really saw that as our mission. And then when you hear the stories of, of what these people suffer through, which is still to me kind of inconceivable... You know, I was working 14-hour days, seven days a week. Hmm. I was in my early 20s, and I was not taking care of myself. Yeah. Uh, Methamphetamine's amazing. What a lot. It, I was, it was caffeine for me. I okay. was on a lot of caffeine. Mm. But I, hard, I didn't eat very much. I did not take care of myself. And I told myself, well, what am I complaining about? You know what right. I mean? Like, uh, it's absurd yeah, for me. Compared right. to the stories yeah, you're hearing. You know, why it's selfish of me to take care of yes. myself or whatever. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? So you bring up distractions or other coping mechanisms. You know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge because if we say, hey, I'm trying to look square on at what we're facing here. I can't afford, you know, to have distractions, you know, watch Netflix and right. do whatever it How is. How selfish of me to stream a video. Yeah. But but we do have to care for ourselves. And so I think caring for ourselves maybe looks different for different people and maybe at different times it is different. So 
this is maybe thinking about re- resilience, right? One of the properties of resilience is diversity, right? right? So if you think about a diversity of approaches and how you build your own resilience and take care of yourself, and maybe some days when it's beautiful outside, Rob, you go out in mm-hmm. nature and you ride your bike. Right. Maybe not today, right. right? So you have another option for today, and that's shoot heroin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Comfortably I mean, numb, baby. A, lo- a lot of the time, the, the juxtaposition, though, is like thinking about this and then doing self-care. And I think... There's the other thing, which is being part of a community, going out and being part of the thing that you're trying to save. It's volunteering or doing something for others. Because I think the self-care thing has become a trope as well. And yeah, thinking about yourself all the time is horrible. I mean, talk about anxiety. Oh my God. Like I'm around me all the time. Yeah, Um, But like... And you're a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you hardly ever write Wall Street Journal articles. Uh, <laughs> How do we know we that's never not her print them. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that that self-care can also be contributing to something else, going and being a part of something else. Sure. They're usually put in different categories, right? Like you're volunteering or you're doing self-care. And I think that those can be combined. I, I yeah. agree. That's a really good point. Well, and let, yeah. let's talk also about just countering this this bullshit. I mean, we have an advisor at PCI, Leslie Davenport, who is a uh, psychotherapist and deals a lot with people who have climate anxiety issues and is trying to help them work through it. And she's got a response to this article, right? And it's, this is real. We need to face it. We need to deal with it. There are methods and clinical tools we can use, but Yes, people need to remain functional in the face of a real disaster that they're responding to in a logical way. And it's good to see people like Leslie, and there are a lot of others too, who are painting a realistic picture of what's happening rather than the the denialism that you see in the mainstream media. I think there are more therapists that are like trying to learn about this, right, and get get training in it even as... Mm. as Yeah, I mean, so that's actually one of the things that Leslie, Leslie is a psychotherapist, and she's really helping lead a charge, I think, uh, sort of a new movement within the community to try to arm and train and support therapists to provide that kind of support for their clients. Um, And so there's, there's actually something called the Climate Psychology Alliance. They are, you know, they have a directory of therapists who are climate aware. You know, I think that directory is growing over time. There's trainings are happening for for therapists who are looking to, you know, to be more skilled in supporting, you know, clients in that. There are things like the Good Grief Network, which is an online community of people who are trying to process things. There's the work of Britt Ray and others at Generation Dread, Gen Dread. Hmm. Uh, they have a Substack where they write about stuff. Oh yeah, good uh, article on that recently by this physician. Yeah, that I really like. He was talking about his his process. So yeah. there are more and more resources for the for this stuff. And and I I actually I really resonate with what you just said, Melody. Around self care is not just an isolated activity. Self care is about being in community, and and that's another thing that we were conditioned as a species to do. And Danny Sellermeyer, who we have interviewed before for this podcast on multi-species justice, wrote a piece actually also in the in the Guardian recently, talking about her dread and her grief and fear of the coming summer in Australia. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. Because they're anticipating another after they had these devastating fires, and, yeah. you know, black fires in 2019. And she was directly in in the crosshairs of the fires and trying to 
save all these other species and beings right. that she she cohabits with. And then they had years of flooding, which was also pretty devastating. Now they're looking back at situation of fires, and she's got all this dread anticipating this. And, and something she wrote that I think is really, really profound to me, and she wrote, The truth is that this summer and the summers to come will bring extreme heat and fires, the extent of which we cannot yet know. But the truth is also that there's so much we can collectively be doing to ease the burden for all Earth beings as we move into that future. As counterintuitive as it may sound, looking at our predicament square in the eye and then in the face of what we see, organizing and acting collectively, politically and practically with a view to caring for the planet that is our earthly home is the only way through climate dread. Mm-hmm. So if, if she could do that, considering what she's gone through, I think we could do it too. Yeah, yeah. that's great. We just gave you a whole bunch of do the opposite ideas so you can take action in your life and community. If that's too much at this time in your life, do something real simple. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify or any other podcast app and hit the share button to let your friends know about Crazy Town. 